This is a warning to all living mortals that on the 13th of December, Moose will release 13 of the most terrifying interviews of horror unto the world. It's your holiday horror host here, Moose. Take this time and head over to electronicmediacollective.com and catch up on all of our old episodes of Moose's Monster Mash. But come back on December 13th for the start of Moose's 13 horrifying days of Christmas. That's right, 13 brand new episodes in the month of December leading up to our season two premiere. And until then, horror hounds, mash on. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bullspit. Welcome, Moose Pack, to another all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. We're joined today by a wearer of many hats. Writer, producer, animator, artist, and story editor. Whew. Please welcome the multi-talented Mr. Tad Stones. Hey, good day to you. Good day. <laughs> hello, Moose, and hello to all you spit fans, or however it goes. <laughs> uh, I want to say one thing on, my, on the description of my jobs. Those are all pretty accurate for my... Once I got into TV animation, but I was lucky enough to come into Disney right out of college, literally three days out of college. And that was like in 1974. And the company was so small, it's hard for people to realize this when they're used to a Disney that owns half the entertainment properties in the universe. Um, The animation department was 55 people not counting ink and paint ladies because that was when they were still painting cells. That's the entire crew that put out, you know, the era like Jungle Book, uh, Aristocats, Robin Hood, um, that era in there, Rescuers, the original one. So I came in in the middle of production on Rescuers. But the company was so small, often people were you know, it wasn't so much, oh, he's a this kind of guy, we'll slot him in over here. Sure, there was a lot of that. If you you know, if you're known for story, you're gonna be used as story. Like I ended up probably because they didn't know what to do with me, I moved into story, helped out on Fox and Hound, didn't get a credit because that was when there was like six cards of credits as opposed to today where everybody gets credited and then people who are like walk through the corridor at some time in production sometimes get credits but uh anyway i did story on fox and hound and then uh for whatever reason they put me on i helped out in an unofficial way on pete's dragon working with don blues but then i was put on an educational film they wanted me to develop a short subject for the educational side called health and alcohol abuse and it was one of this trilogy of health or whatever it was called films and because I did a good job, and I guess my credit on that one was actually pro- writer-producer, um, which was, come to think of it, probably my first credit. That was pretty good. Anyway, because I had worked on mixing education and entertainment, 
that stuck in, I guess, Ron Miller's mind. Ron Miller is the son-in-law of Walt Disney, and he was a, um, I don't know if he was president at that time or vice president, whatever he was. He eventually was, you know, the one in charge of the entire company. Uh, anyway, he sent me over to WED, now called Imagineering, to work on Epcot. Uh, Epcot Center was then, you know, just, well, as it is now, a, a collection of buildings themed to certain areas of science. Then the other half was the World Showcase. And I uh, basically helped out in show design, drawing, writing, coloring stuff, making little models. Everybody did everything uh, at that time. And I worked, I got to work with Ward Kimball, fantastic piece of animation history. And he and I shared a room about eight by 10. And we did the World of Motion Transportation ride, which had been started by Mark Davis, Claude Coates, and things like that. So we were just coming in, building these gag sequences and uh, making little drawings that sculpt the sculptors would base things on our drawings, even though I was like, I just meant to do a doodle, you know, and suddenly somebody's sculpting it. And then the space pavilion, which if you ever visit Epcot, you'll notice is not there. But I did get to meet George Lucas at that time, Joe Haldeman, the science fiction writer, and his wife Gay. I got to meet Gordon Cooper, astronauts, engineers, heads of aerospace companies. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then ended up on the Imagination Ride with Tony Baxter, one of the top ride designers, I think, uh, of Imagineering. And it was Tony I and, and Barry Braverman who were basically, and Tom Morris, heading up the group that created the original concept of the Imagination Pavilion. And then, right as Tony said, the fun start part starts, which is actually getting to build the ride. Uh, I was brought back to the studio to, to work on some documentary films based on Epcot themes, which the networks didn't want. <laughs> it's like, the, the, again, Disney small company, old mentality. They thought their relationship with TV was like Walt's relationship with TV, which was they were begging Walt Disney to come up with television programming. And he finally did it. He says, but it's got to be called Disneyland, which is based on a park that I'm building down in. Orange County, California. And they said, sure, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, decades later, when uh, Disney comes and says, yes, we'd like to have a series of documentaries that match the themes of Epcot Center. And these should run one night after another in the first week of October. And the networks, first of all, that's back when television season always started at the same time in the last couple of weeks of September because that's when the new model cars would always come out, different worlds. But it was like, that was one of the seasons of the year. New fall season, you know, of television, new cars coming out in the same month. So here's Disney walk, you know, they're walking in saying, uh, oh yeah, take that brand new programming you're trying to get established and take that off and put in our stuff. Um, and they just said, you know, we have our own news divisions to do low rated documentaries. We really don't need your help. Uh, so, so those projects dissolved out from under me, which is pretty good as far as I'm concerned, because I was way over my head. I mean, conceptually, I reinvented them and all the companies were much happier with what I did instead of being a show about energy and a show about the land and show about spaceship Earth or wh whatever. 
uh, I said, I want to make them about the future human, about all the changes science can bring to our bodies, replacement limbs, exoskeletons, genetic engineering, cloning, you know, whatever, using that as an excuse to talk about all sorts of science fiction ideas. The second one would be future home and the advent of home computers, uh, which again, right at that time, no one had them or they were just starting to come into homes. Um, then futures. And they sure weren't what they are today. Well, yeah, they didn't fit into people's pockets, that's for sure. Anyway, and then the future, so future home, future city, which is about transportation and how cities could change and, you know, and as usual in that traditional world's fair way, these would be pretty optimistic views of the future. It was all about the potential city planning could have as opposed to let's be realistic about, you know, what's going to happen. And then future Earth, which was overall... You know, stuff that was the one that would have been very hard to be optimistic about because we were very much worried about overpopulation uh, now we just kind of accept it uh, no one was talking about climate change and when they did bet you couldn't have uh, planned this year well that was it it was like oh let's talk about global pandemics that'll that'll be entertaining let's do a cartoon the one thing that did happen is there was a small group of guys from the animation department headed up by Daryl Van Sitters um, who now runs his own company, Renegade Animation. But uh, Daryl and Joe Ramph, who later went on to Pixar to be a head story man there. Uh, Mike Giamo, who, among other things, directed Disney Features, also was an art director on Frozen. Uh, Chris Buck, who directed Tarzan and Frozen, Frozen 2. Uh, anyway, really talented, very small group. They were kind of being talked about as this group will do Roger Rabbit. So they need a small project to start getting some experience. Uh, so they took the, and I had animation planned as part of these things. So we went ahead and grabbed a bunch of the animated segments and they went into production. Then again, the projects fell apart and those animated segments were put together in a little short subject called Fun with Mr. Future, which you might find on, I might be on YouTube but basically was narrated uh, by Phil Poc Proctor of The Credibility Gap. And uh, Phil was the voice of Mr. Future, who was the inside of Abe Lincoln's head with a bow tie. And uh, he was the host of looking at the future as shown in all our little animated sequences. So that was a crazy little project that came out of nowhere and is the only evidence that we existed. And then, of course... None of those guys went on to Roger Rabbit. I mean, maybe some as animators and all that, but it changed as outside directors came in and, and, you know, it was a much bigger scale type project than Disney was used to doing. So that was after the big change in management. You know, it's funny. After all the uh, names you just dropped, there was only one I was prepared to ask you about. Um, what was it? Yeah. I wanted to know about your time working with the... Uh, the, the man who is arguably a legend in animation, uh, the legendary Don Bluth. Um, Don was uh, kind of a Svengali character. Uh, I worked at Don. Don put together a little film called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And he basically, you know, again, using the excuse that we need to get experience. We're not getting our chance at features working on the rescuers. 
we have to take control. And basically every new group of animators came in, the guys would kind of go through them and they never kind of jived with the CalArts crowd, but uh, some other random animators, you know, pulled them together and they would work on weekends at Don's. I did that for several weekends, but then I said, you know what, I can't do this. One, I was a terrible in-betweener. That's what I was kind of doing. Uh, but I said, I still think it can happen at Disney. And I really can't come here every weekend to hear you guys talk. Because Don Bluth's lore that they were pushing was that they put this project together to gain experience. Closer to the truth is that the animation department was practically going to be handed to Don as potentially, you know, the next lead director. But he did not like the idea that Ron Miller could come in, give notes, and and you'd have to change your movie to fit those notes, which weren't necessarily great notes. And they would constantly talk about leaving Disney. So that's why I left his group. They were already talking about living, leaving Disney. This was, you know, which they ultimately did in the middle of uh, Fox and Hound. But I worked with Don in an unofficial capacity. Again, no credit, but helping out on in Pete's Dragon. I think I stood in uh, during photo reference, sometimes for Mickey Rooney, who I would have to, like, scrunch down because <laughs> I, I was a couple feet taller than Mickey Rooney. I think everybody's taller than Mickey Rooney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the Don Hahn, the Disney producer, just recently posted online pictures of me in the lighthouse set, you know, blowing out a candle wick. So they could say, okay, that's where the body is going to be. And then they would pencil in where Elliot the dragon would be. So it was very, it was very informal. You know, I just, we went on a couple, the group went on a couple of trips to Catalina. That was fun. We just weekend with family, kind of a bonding thing. But it was really a, a larger scale thing that they were doing. So it's a mixed thing. There were some good times with Don. And then I felt like, you, you're trying to hurt this department as you leave, you know, was my sense. And, you know, that's why they all left the same day and they all said the same thing. And anyway, so there wasn't not much to tell, you know, beyond that. I will say this about Don philosophically, because it, uh, my good friend is Ron Clemens. Now, Ron went on with John Musker to pretty much usher in the golden age of animation with Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and, you know, everything up to, or all sorts of things up to Moana. Um, Don would always talk about, you know, we'd have these, once a month they'd, ha they'd have us meet with people who were head of departments at Disney just to get a broader sense of the company. And then Don would or organize some screenings that we could look at films as kind of a reference and talk about them just in a general, let's learn more or think more about animation. And remember this, and again, we call them sweat boxes. They're basically small projection rooms. Basically, we're in there, and he's showing some footage. I forget what it was. Uh, and then he would talk about you should go out and study mimes, uh, ballet, go to the theater, because that's the kind of acting. It's broader. They're playing to the back rows. You can see the movement of ballet and, and the costuming and lighting. You know, it was on and on about that. And I remember after that specific screening, I walked out with Ron, and Ron said, he never talks about movies. He talks about 
ballet and theater and mimes, but we're making movies, you know, it's, you know, basically, yeah, we're putting frames of films together and light comes through it, projects onto a big screen that the audience reacts to, but it's true. He never talked about cinema and that is a huge thing that Jeffrey Katzenberg brought to Disney Studios when he got into animation and they realized, well, this is a valuable resource and Jeffrey learned more and more about it. He once looked at Black Cauldron was in production at that time and Jeffrey was in a sweat box with a bunch of lead animators and directors and there was evidently a horn a, pig, a scene of the horn king walking downstairs and jeffrey said do we have this from another angle and there was silence and then joe hill who was the producer of the movie said we could draw it from another angle and then you know jeffrey laughed and you know slap your forehead moment and people got a chuckle out of it now the old guard who were resisting these new guys coming in pointed to that and derisively and said, you know, look how little this guy knows, you know, to ask that. Whereas I look at it and said, he was thinking of it as a movie. Yeah, it opens it up to a more cinematic presence. Yeah, I mean, in other words, he was just reacting to it as an audience and saying, do you need this? Do you have this for another angle? Was another way of saying, uh, saying, this angle is not dramatic. This has got no punch to it. You know, what can we do? Do we have this a different angle that we can get more out of? You know, he was thinking of it as a movie. And one of the big things he did at Feature Animations, he uh, brought in movie editors at the beginning of the process so that as things were storyboarded and you start putting them up at, on reel, we called them story reels, and now everybody refers to them as animatics. But basically, you're putting story sketches up They've got either temp track or the actors, you know, the dialogue's been cut together and you, and sometimes there's temp music and all that. Well, as that's being prepared, the editor could come in and say, basically, here's another angle we need. Or if you do it this way, we can get more out of this. If you want to make that story point, what if we put in basically making suggestions on editing at that point? So when you put it up on real, you weren't just putting up the story, you were putting up drama or comedy. You know, you were, you were trying to get the most effective presentation out of it. And that is when I think the whole studio took a huge leap because you look at that era where that middle era of, uh, which were not fantastic films other than I think 101 Dalmatians is a fantastic film, but Sword in the Stone and, and Aristocats, Robins and all that, they were still using movie techniques from the 30s and not always the most dramatic techniques there. It was more about showcasing the animator's work than presenting mood and atmosphere and story and, and all that. It was a lot more whimsy in those earlier movies. Yeah, I mean, it was just, there was a lot of, uh, Don Bluth would say, it's it's like having uh, great actors on a vaudeville stage. They don't really have a script. They're just, you know, there's no substance there. They're just doing soliloquies or, or something, you know, as opposed to really getting a movie that moves you. And I think that's what changed. The other huge element in movies was uh, Howard Ashman. When he came in, Howard wrote Little Shop of Horrors and then, of course, Little Mermaid and Aladdin. And when it came to, to music, but what he brought was the concept of how to use music in that although theater say Oklahoma was evidently a big breakthrough in, in having the music tell the story. 
but way before that was Pinocchio and some of the songs there were, were telling the story the same way. But Howard Ashman would say, no, you take your most dramatic points and put them in song. You know, you have the character, you know, some of the stuff everybody knows now. It's like you want a, a character to sing an I want song. And that is they are saying what they want early on. That's their goal. Now, they might might reach that goal in a way they didn't expect, like in, you know, he was already it had you know, passed by the time they did Lion King. But in Lion King, the I want song is Simba saying, I can't wait to be king. And it's like he wants to be king. He's going to be in charge of people. He's going to be important. And at the end, he finds out that, no, if you are king, you are serving people. You know, you are the one watching out for people. So he, he got to be king, but in a whole different way and a whole different route. Uh, and all that came in the new era of, of animation from taking it seriously, both as a movie and then ironically going when it comes to what Don Bluth had talked about, looking at theater, but looking at it in a, not in a presentational way, but in a story way, really analyzing how musicals tell their stories. And that got us a line of princess films that... Them. that aren't going Everybody anywhere <laughs> well i mean those were yeah i mean those were landmark films and then everybody all those individual creators saying okay now i want to do something different and then all those films came out in a row and and they were very brave experiments but you know the audience was basically saying what happened to our princesses you know and that gave treasure planet atlantis pocahontas arguably they're trying different things purposely not fitting the old pattern, but it was that was a beloved pattern too. And they kind of reinvented that with Tangled and then uh, of course Frozen just changed how the antagonists were presented and the complexities of their stories. This new run of princess movies, Tangled, Brave and Frozen, it's still very different from the last group of princesses because it's not the damsel in distress it's not i have to have somebody rescue me they're very much that strong independent woman type yeah and i mean a lot of that was in in those early films too oh, but yeah. i mean uh ron john was self-conscious about little mermaid because you know at a certain point you just got to get this movie done but yeah in the climax you, you have the whole story figured out one way where ariel is in this very weakened shriveled up state and has to be rescued whereas they had more time a little more 3000 foot view or whatever to really take stock of everything it's like wait a minute she's been this kind of independent girl whether you can argue about her goal being catching this guy that she fell in love with but still at the end she didn't it would have been better if she could have rescued herself or rescued him in fact in some way but when you're in the middle of it you've already gone down the path it's like there's no way to, to really do that. So, yeah, do you turn back and start over, or do you just keep heading down the path you're going down and finish it out? Yeah. Ironically, I remember when Ron was, he was an animator, and, and people don't realize what a great animator Ron Clements was because he quickly moved into story and then directing. And the only big animation he did was Fox and Hound with Big Mom and the Owl. But he did a pencil test fabled pretzel test of Cruella de Vil as his third test. That's, it takes you two tests to say, okay, now you're working here. And then 
you advanced by doing back then you advanced by doing tests in your spare time and uh, Ron did a test and actually showed the same review board screening as my second test but it was Cruella de Vil and it was the review board which was made out up of many of Walt's nine old men felt like that is good enough to be in the film and it was it was not an exaggeration it was like oh my god this kid did this <laughs> you know and he immediately was taken her Frank Thomas's wing and worked with Frank but Ron was just fantastic animator but you know he was just a great storyteller and kind of great partner and John Musker and the two of them just did a line of great movies so what do the duties entail for producer on an animated movie or series you know it, it changed it changes from studio to studio at least back then it did what I did basically how a showrunner is described in television today you say oh he's the showrunner and it pretty much means that the main thing is the guy is in charge of the whole series the stories how it's supposed to go and then all decisions run through that person and then he works with directors and maybe a co-producer certainly line producers who take care of the you know the brass tacks and herding the cats of the crew and making sure there's a schedule and a budget and all of that producer has to sign off on all that stuff but i didn't i would basically work with the budget department and say i need this much time for a storyboard guy to work on this to produce his chunk of a 22 minute episode and they would cost it out and all of that so that's what i did i you know rescue ranch was a killer show because it was because it, it almost killed me um but it was we weren't staffed enough when it came to writing and story and then by darkwing duck and onward it was like i was the head of story in my role as producer or story editor executive story editor you know we put down whatever credits seemed logical at the time but then i had story editors who would then report to me and those story editors would work with writers and in animation again more back then oftentimes it was a story editor who really wrote the script he was, you know if you were lucky to have a writer who was good enough that you just had to do a light edit that would only last so long before we would bring that writer in and make him a story editor so my duties were handing out to a director describing the script answering their questions looking at all the props and the character designs so even though a director had worked with i would meet with the various designers or the art director or however the department was arranged at the time and you know the descriptions were in the script itself but then we i kick around ideas and uh, because i i'm an artist too i would on some of the characters make a little drawing and saying this is what i'm thinking of something along this line so i was counting on them to you know boost it up to the next level which they did because my job my main job was to hire people better than i was i knew a lot of each department to be dangerous <laughs> you know to give notes and the more i worked with them the more i learned too which would help me on later projects i remember later on when i was working on one of the hellboy films the second one blood and iron there was a sequence with a with a werewolf and the director vic cook said i really want to push this scene toward the red and we're looking at the background and designs for it and i thought that was a great idea and they said okay we're thinking of something like this and i said no 
okay. And again, I knew enough to be dangerous and I knew Photoshop and it was like, no, no, push the saturation way, way up, way to the red. And the guy would nudge it a little bit. I said, no, all, and then I just reached around and I shoved it all the way up. Everyone, yeah, you know, cause it's like glowing red and burning on the screen and all that. I said, okay, now pull it back, pull it back. Okay. Right there. Look how dramatic it is. That looks great. And they said, yeah. And then I said, okay, now put it back to where you thought it was red. And it practically looked black and black and white. I would just, I knew enough to say, push it, get it out of your brain, push it way, 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 way too far. Now pull it back. Okay, there. And then you realize how going the other way by just kind of nudging it, nudging it, you weren't going to get there. You weren't going to get to that sort of thing. So that was the most fun is that came from working with the program when I was developing shows or working with another background artist. And then I could bring that knowledge to you know, a later show. And so that worked in basically all areas. I visited the first time I visited the new DuckTales crew. Uh, one of the writers in the writer's room said, how big was your writer's room? I said, we didn't have a writer's room. I said, it was just people coming to my office, pitching a story and then us hashing it out or yelling at each other till we got one. And we had a closet pretty much. And it was, uh, and our script schedule was like alternated between two scripts needed this week and one script the next, as opposed to being able to have a time where, Oh, the production crew isn't on the show yet. We can just, we're going to map out the arc of this season and let's break all the stories ourselves. And none of that happens, you know, and it's so, I'm so in awe of what they've pulled off in the shows and how, how high the quality is. And it's because of their time to organize this stuff. And they still feel pressed because their appetite has grown so much, uh, how good they want it, how the art director comes on and, and emphasizes story points and character points by what he does in the backgrounds and the color choices and things like that. Yeah, I have no time for people to say, oh, animation today is so terrible. Bring me back to the old days that I grew up with. And the I have the perspective of, yes, I hear that every five years when people say, these shows are crap. I want the shows that when I was a little kid. And it's like, yeah. And that person is saying that the show you loved was a piece of crap. You know, it's like every generation, it's what you grow up with. You have your favorites and you have the things that you don't think are good. And it's like every generation has crummy shows and great shows. Uh, and there's a bunch of fantastic shows out right now. And, uh, you know, you go back to the old days. It's like, yeah, it's called nostalgia and, and enjoy it. And then be open to new things. And you say, you see great new television. Oh, yeah. One of the biggest ones catching flack for that right now is uh, Thundercats uh, Roar. Mm -hmm. And it's that, like, chibi style of uh, animation. Yeah. And, yeah, I was one of those that was kind of leery about it at first. But give it a fair shake. I'll watch it before I judge it. I don't like how short it is is my only yeah. takeaway from mm -hmm. it. it. It's The show's not for me. You know, well, the cartoon's the not for me. It's for yeah. my kid. He loves it, and it got him interested in the original. So, you know what? I'll take it. I don't care. Yeah, it's all just different forms of entertainment and different styles, and, and that's a big deal of who the audience is for. And, you know, it's not for you, so don't whine about it how it's not for you. It was interesting. Frank Angonis is the guy who is in charge of story on the new DuckTales, uh, the co-producer of the show. The producer's Matt Youngberg. It's funny that Frank hears, you know, doing the reboot, which is now loved, 
but plenty of haters, especially early on. Frank obviously opened to new ideas, and that's his role to reboot the thing. But even then, he was in a meeting once when executives were talking about gargoyles, and uh, you know, which gargoyles was the most heavily dramatic yeah. uh, continuity show we ever turned out. The syndicators were not happy with it because they love to mix up the order of episodes and do that with gargoyles, you're totally lost. Anyway, he was at a meeting where an executive said, what if we do gargoyles, bring back gargoyles like, uh, you know, Team Titans Go. <laughs> and, and Frank kind of shouted, he did shout out loud, No! <laughs> I already turned at him, and it was like, well, I didn't mean to say that out loud. But uh, Greg Wiseman, creator of the show, the original Gargoyles, he said, I'd be perfectly fine with that. I'd be more fine with that than, you know, somebody just coming in and trying to do a, you know, a weaker version of what I did. It is. It's a whole, it, you say, look, these, when reboots happen or new shows happen that use an old property, it's like you got a flower. You don't usually, I suppose you can do cuttings, but whatever. You don't like, if you have a rose, you don't cut off a rose and then stick it in the ground and expect to get a new rose bush. It just dies. But you get the rose seed and pollinated and all of that. And then you plant the seeds and it grows into a new bush. And it's like, yeah, you're looking at an old show. They're saying, gee, this show is 30 years old or whatever. And am I really going to just continue the stories and assume everybody in my potential audience has watched all the episodes and committed them to memory. There are those people who have, but not the big audience that you want. No, it's not. It's, it's saying like, yeah, but I love the concept of those medieval characters come to this, you know, modern times and what can we do that's different of it? Or they're inspired by what they grew up with, you know, and they could say, Ooh, what if we took it more comedic or what if we took it more dramatic or what if we, you know, what if we put it on the moon? Those are all, it's like, Sherlock Holmes, you you see the new Sherlock Holmes, you say, well, is a new Sherlock Holmes set in the 1800s or is it set in the future or is it current days with Benedict Cumberbatch? Uh, you know, you don't expect the new Sherlock Holmes movie to be like the one previous unless it's, you know, in one in a series. Everyone tries to capture the essence of Sherlock Holmes and then put it in a new format. And that's what you do with ideas when you base them on old stuff, when you have characters that are 50 years old, <laughs> much older, I guess, Donald and Mickey coming in at 70s, 75 now. You know, if you're going to do something new with them, you say, well, yeah, let's do it exactly like he first was done. That's when it was good. Yeah, except the audience isn't the same audience as 1935 or 8 or whatever it was when Mickey was put on screen yeah you know, you, you're doing a show for today's audience and you can do it in many different ways so i'm always excited there's all sorts of new animated shows the two on netflix i just i've already watched hilda a couple of times it's just a charming little show that's a celebration of animation it's a fantastic you know examination of a fantasy world and what is taken for granted without explanation of that show. It's just fantastic. I love that show. And then uh, in the same way, except in science fiction adventure, is Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beast. Yeah, that I'm like two episodes in, and that so far I'm hooked. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just finished up the second season. You know, I'd, I'd seen the first when it came out. It is not 
telling the story in the expected way. There's true growth of characters, both the good guys and the bad guys. As you go through this story, they cover some, you know, deep emotional issues. But again, fantastic landscape. Not everything is explained to you. The guys have done a fantastic job in creating the show. Love to see more of that. I don't know where the, the creator was Brad Seacrest, who's currently, I believe, at DreamWorks developing a movie. So I don't think it's a Kipo movie. So I have no idea if there's going to be a third season, who's in charge or if there is or whatever. But all I know is Netflix used their money to back a lot of very creative animation people and said, you know, tell us your dream project and then put the person and their concepts through their algorithms and came up with some budgets that really allowed them to see it so oh, i can't yeah. wait to see the. i just saw the trailer for glenn keen's new movie which i believe is called over the moon and it's like someone took glenn's soul and heart and well someone's glenn you know and put it on the screen just so optimistic and feel and just from the trailer alone looks fantastic so that's the thing during this pandemic animation industry has not really slowed down they don't Animators just start working from home, you know, deliver their work electronically. It's just is the one side of the industry that has just kept on chugging along. Speaking of creating and stuff like that, you had a hand in pretty much laying the groundwork for the creation of what is now the Disney Channel. And by that, I mean with the shows that you worked on with Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Darkwing Duck, Gummy Bears. The Aladdin TV series, Buzz Lightyear's Star Command, and Hercules. I mean, those were all pretty much the staples of the early Disney Channel when they went, hey, let's make this, let's have our kids' channel. Well, not not really, (laughs) in that uh, things happened at the same time, wanted to get into television animation, and I was at the first meeting at Michael Eisner's house about that, um, which was just a weekend to his reign on a Sunday at his house. And it was like Michael started in TV animation. Um, so we were getting started at the same time as they're saying, oh, yeah, we want to do cable. And we're definitely want to the Disney Channel was already on. I believe so. Um or it was about to be on, and it was kind of a mishmash of all sorts of experimental things. That was back when people thought, oh, cable TV is wonderful. Things don't have to be a half hour long. If you have an eight-minute idea, we can do it. It was like public access TV, and the reality of cable quickly became, no, it's like television, except you can do more stuff. It's yeah. not going to be 17-and-a-half-minute shows or you know, <laughs> a person reading a story to you they're pretty much going to look like the rest of tv just something subject matter will be different anyway when we were animating our shows and i don't think gummy bears went on disney channel but when we were doing our syndicated shows we would give as a favor to the disney channel just to help it out because it's all about you know perceived value when you want people to sign up for something we would give them 13 episodes of whatever our series was and that's all they got they got 13 episodes it ran generally i believe early summer or spring and then the following fall is when it would debut on on syndicated television so the channel had plenty going on that wasn't us what we 
the Disney afternoon is a different story. That was all about, okay, we've got these shows now. Let's do a two hour block. And how are we going to fill that? Yeah. But yeah, I was part of, I was there at the initial meeting, but then went back to features was actually considering leaving the company and then happened to meet somebody who was also at that omission, uh, original meeting. And he, when I mentioned that to him, he said, well, why don't you come over and visit us? And suddenly I found myself there. So I came in, Gummy Bears was created by Jim Magon and Art Patello. And that was, they're already getting episodes coming back from overseas of the first season. Then I took on, I became co-producer and story editor on the third season because the network, Jim Magon had never done television before. He had worked with uh, Gary Kreisel, head of the TV area in college. And then in the, uh, and Gary brought him in to help him with the record company. And Gary had took a, this nothing company and turned out hit records, you know, aimed at kids, but it was a fantastic turnaround. That's why he got his chance to move into television and then really created TV animation and built the department on an executive level. Anyway, when they sold the show to the network, they said, well, who's the story editor going to be? And they say, Jim Magon, who just pitched the show to you. And they say, well, okay, well, what scripts, is, you know, what shows has he done before? Oh, none. What scripts does he have? Uh, none. <laughs> and it's like, well, then we want, you look back at that, you say, are you kidding me? <laughs> Certainly understand the network, but Disney just held firm. And it was like, hey, if you want our show, there's two networks that got a show each. That meant there was a, network abc as a matter of fact hungry for a disney show and so it's like well if you don't want it you know abc i'll take it and everybody was afraid because they had no clue that you know disney would be this huge monster name coming into television anyway so jim was done for two years and then after two years the fact that the show is really good show is popular enough but it's not like creating recreating television or anything they said we now want someone else to to work with. Now, strangely enough, I too had never done a television show, <laughs> but I had started in features and had done plenty of work in story. And I was put up as this replacement and they, they just wanted somebody different. Uh, Cause Jim's super passionate and very, uh, you know, held his ground and, you know, it wasn't a lot of love lost between Jim and the network executives. So I came in and just, had a little honeymoon period where they were being light on me and then I started struggling and then I got through my season and my favorite episodes were the ones that were the most fantasy and lore based, the longer episodes, 22 minute episodes. And a lot of this, a lot of my career is, is half remembering things like the hobbits and the El and the um, Ents of Middle Earth. And I did an episode with living trees and a lot of Darkwing was remembering, you know, without having the internet, not being able to call up all the stories just as well, but remembering the covers of Silver Age DC comics, especially the Flash and to a lesser extent, Superman of just the big crazy comic book covers where Jimmy Olsen was a giant turtle man or Lois Lane had a, a huge head because she had been super evolved. A story they told again with <laughs> Superman and again with the Flash. They kept reusing the same stories. Anyway, it was me half remembering things and saying, Oh, I could tell a story about that. So those are my favorite gummy bears one were those those twenty two minutes because Jim had already introduced the idea of the ancient gummies and things like that. And approaching that sort of stuff was was super fun. And then when it came time for the Disney afternoon, they had DuckTales. And then they had Rescue Rangers and Tailspin. 
and they needed a fourth show to take that first slot. And they say, well, we've got three seasons of gummy bears. Let's do enough episodes to fill out 65 episodes of that. So Rich Fogel and uh, Mark Seidenberg were two guys who took over that and, and ran with it. And then, of course, Darkwing gets added and they have another duck to add to the block. Well, yeah, the Chippendale was fun. Chippendale was originally pitched as a different character. They were not in it. And uh, again, it was it was Michael Eisner at a meeting saying, this is a good show. We just don't, I don't feel anything for the main character. And Jeffrey Katzenberg agreed. And we we're, you know, kind of pitching it harder. And Jeffrey, I remember Jeffrey said, guys, it's a great show. We like the show. We, You just need more work on that central character who was Kit Colby, who wore this aviator jacket. Anyway, the second part of the meeting, we talked about DuckTales. Are there any of the other classic characters that we can use? They said Donald's kind of in DuckTales. He's hard to animate, hard to understand. They got to Goofy, and it was like, oh, yeah, definitely. Goofy went through a huge segment of his career as an everyman character. So he could be a private detective. He could be, you know, anything you wanted. So they said, yes, develop some Goofy stuff. Uh, Pluto, they didn't say, we're not going to do a show on the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and we, when we mentioned Chip and Dale, it was Michael Eisner who said, put those guys in that show. And Jeffrey said, home run. And uh, that was jumping into that and, and creating that. And it changed our pitch. We lost characters because then we had two leads. You can't have too many characters on the team. Chip got the aviator jacket and uh, Kit name was given to a young bear in Tailspin. And so, you know, we were off and running on that one. With Darkwing, it was 100% Jeffrey Katzenberg who led to the creation of him. Um, Jeffrey and Michael both loved intriguing names or gimmicky names for a series. The idea was it was your job to do a great series and keep an audience. But if you had some sort of an intriguing name that helps in marketing or, you know, in some way that would bring in maybe a little more audience to sample it and then it's up to you to keep them. And actually Rescue Rangers started way back as a pitch called Miami Mice. This is of course when Miami Vice was big and it got approved there. And then in development, we did a script of it where Fat Cat was created, but it was called Metro Mice. It was very much just a mouse police station. And we just came up against the wall of there's not that many crimes that we can do. Most police shows are about murder or violence, and we can't do any of that stuff. You know, no. we can't keep robbing cheese and jewelry stores. But it did create Fat Cat. Anyway, that Metro Mice then became the Rescue Rangers, which ultimately became Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers. So there was that growth thing. With DuckTales had done an episode called Double O Duck. And Jeffrey said, I want you to develop a show called Double O Duck, but it can't be Launchpad. You know, it's got to be a new character. That's the whole point. I was not excited about the assignment because this is before Austin Powers, which showed how funny parodies can be. But I said, just going to be another James Bond parody. It's not going to have heart to it. And we developed it and pitched it. And Jeffrey basically said, there's no heart to this. You know, he totally agreed with me. And I'm very lucky I realized recently that he didn't put somebody else on it. And instead, he said, do it over. And now I had to find a way to do what I should have done, give him an original show. And because all of our writing staff, for the most part, and the, certainly the story editors, were on term contracts as opposed to show contracts, 
quit diversion. A show contract means you're hired just to do Darkwing Duck. And that means if they want you to do anything else, in theory, they're supposed to pay you for it. A term contract is we will pay you this amount of money for three years. I have an option for if we still like you, we'll take another two years at this salary. So that was the standard kind of contract. So it's called a term contract. You're here for a certain amount of time. In a term contract, they basically own all the ideas you have. So you could be called in for brainstorming or whatever, which frankly, it was a fun part of the job. I had famous brainstorming sessions with gargoyles that helped that show on, even though it was just one thing. And in this time, a bunch of the guys I'd eventually been working with, and we had some early artwork, and I, for the life of me, cannot remember who put the mask on Double O Duck and the hat and the cape. It likely was me, but it just seems like, why would I have come up with that other than we had come up with this idea of he needed a secret identity, which meant he needed a mask. And we took it from there. So it was this white tuxedo duck with a cape and a mask and a little pork pie hat. Anyway, so that came from Jeffrey. Do that. But one of the story editors I was brainstorming with said, you know, I look at this guy in the mask and cape and hat, and he feels more like an old pulp hero, like Green Hornet or The Shadow. And that clicked with me. That was, I love that stuff. I didn't grow up with it. I wasn't that old. It was, you know, I knew it through the lore of fandom and comics that had been based on it. And Doc Savage had this team of characters, these eccentric guys who helped him behind the scenes. And there was an engineer and a chemist and a communications guy, a transportation guy. And it's like, that's a different way of having a team helping this spy that doesn't fit the James Bond parodies. It's totally unique. Let's investigate that. Well, of course, again, that's a lot of characters. We eventually just cut it down, cut it down, and came up with Launchpad. And Launchpad was part of that team, just kind of as he filled a, of a niche, and he had been in our minds because of the initial, strangely enough, Jeffrey saying it can't be Launchpad, and yet there we were putting Launchpad in the show. <laughs> and so he always hung out, and then we said, you know what? We just need a guy to be the pilot and a foil with Darkwing. And, of course, Darkwing's daughter ultimately became what if Batman had a little girl who refused to stay at home. That was the show. And it was called Double O Duck. And they loved the show. They loved the heart now and all of that. And we went out and started selling the show. And they made little cloisonne pins that said Double O Duck. And he looked like Donald, basically, in a white tuxedo. And then the Cubby Broccoli is the producer who owned the rights to all the James Bond movies and and titles and they put out a cease and desist letter saying uh double o is not a thing it was created by ian fleming <laughs> it's not like the cia or something that pre-exists it was like you that's we own that you can't use it and so we were told to come up with a new name and i had no ideas because once you're living with a character and a name it's just like i, I can't brainstorm and uh again the head of the department gary Kreisel, who I always thought of as one of the cheapest guys on the planet. And that's why Disney loved him. He treated their money as if it was his own. He actually put up $500. And that's in 1990, so that's a chunk of change. Yeah. To, of course, whoever comes up with the, the name. And everybody on staff submitted names and a lot of alliteration. Yeah, Dangerous Duck, Dead-Eye Duck, Deadshot Duck. Uh, dumb dilly duck, you know, whatever, <laughs> deadly duck. You know, nothing came close until it was Alan Burnett who came up with the name Darkwing. And I had never thought of Nightwing, you know, but he just, Darkwing. Immediately I loved it. And I said, I want to put duck with it because Darkwing is this dramatic sounding character 
who he thinks he is, and then duck makes it sound silly, which is closer to who he is. He is yeah. that dichotomy of the adventure and the silly. Anyway, Alan got $500 and after a while left to go to Warner Brothers and was the head story editor on Bruce Tim's Batman. <laughs> so we always said that we warmed him up to the dark night with the duck night. Crazy. So anyway, once I dropped the double um, O name, I could basically drop all the spy stuff i just use that as you know for other stories and the idea that oh well, maybe that's where he gets his funding that's who pays for all the equipment but other than that i was now free to you know put my childhood in it which was silver age dc comics marvel comics comics actually i love marvel comics but before that is the time when comics were the silliest and did the giant turtle boy and and you know giant-headed, low-slaying kind of stories. Uh, and that's what I populated Darkwing with, uh, those kinds of stories. And certainly the idea of the rogues gallery is a combination of, you know, the Flash and uh, Batman had two of the best rogue galleries, oh, yeah. rogues galleries in comic, you know, and then also uh, Spider-Man, of course. And Electro became, you know, Electro wasn't the only electric villain or hero, but he became Megavolt. You know, and uh, in fact, Negaduck, people used to say, why, why is he yellow, red and black? The, you know, are those the opposites on the color wheel of Darkwing? And it was like, no, <laughs> I just said, because the most evil, you know, anti the villainous version of a hero was the reverse flash, you know, Professor Zoom. And he wore yellow, red and black. And. Your evil colors, that's what I had grown up with. So that's what Negaduck was. So Silver Age comics were all over the show. And that's when I was the most comfortable. That's, you know, my two favorite projects in my career were Darkwing Duck and, for completely different reasons, the Hellboy animated series. Well, that's where I wanted to go next. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you got to do the Hellboy animated stuff, which was phenomenal. Thank you. Originally, actually, it was supposed to be a series for Cartoon Network, but the. Uh, the various entities could not come to an agreement on how much being a network was worth. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, this company owns the rights, so they're important. Uh, this is the studio doing it. They're important. You know, here's the network putting on the air. They're important. Kind of like, well, since we're the ones putting on the air, we should get this cut of it. You know, and people say, hey, we own the rights. We need this cut of it. Whatever. They couldn't come to an agreement. Mike and I didn't know this, and we were Mike Mignola. That I was working with, creative Hellboy. Um, we had mapped out potential all sorts of shows, did a couple of sample scripts, which I'd already done even before the series was just as writing samples when I left Disney. Anyway, it was it, you know, it was like, oh, we should have this many stories would feature Abe and this story that we'd have to have three Lobster Johnson stories. And very quickly we filled up the sixty-five episodes, which we assumed we were shooting for. But we didn't know, but they hadn't come to an agreement. So it was actually a San Diego Comic-Con uh, at Mike's table when the people involved came up to us and said, okay, we have good news and bad news. You know, we are not doing the Hellboy series, the Cartoon Network, we couldn't come to a deal, but instead we're doing a series of movies. And it was one of those, it was kind of a crazy moment in that you have this, but we have all this, but, well, okay, actually, series of movies sounds pretty cool. And the idea is to be like seven movies or something, because uh, that's how long they had the rights for and put out one a year. 
And that was, that would have been the super cool way of doing things. The only regrets is that the two movies had to be done so fast that they kind of overlapped. So there was no real learning curve. And then I got a chance to write the third movie with Mike. And now we knew, oh, this type of stuff doesn't work as well, but this stuff really works great. And we wrote that script and it was, to me, would have been the, the best because the first script was kind of like a tribute to all the Hellboy short stories. And we actually animated one of the short stories called Heads. They were all Japanese and Asian-themed stories. And Heads was literally one that had been done by Mike. And we animated it. The second one was Blood and Iron. So that was Sword of Storms. So I thought that parts were great. The connecting story wasn't as strong as, as it could have been. Again, had we been able to slow down a bit and just think things through, Maybe it could have ended up more dramatic where I wanted it. Blood and Iron was more about Hellboy's roots with vampires and Central European legends and harpies and and werewolves. And then the third one would have been, in effect, Nazis, mad scientists, cyber ape, you know, heads in jars, robot gorillas. And And that one actually would get into our version of Hellboy's origin, which was slightly tweaked, just in terms of the professor being on the spot. Anyway, it was it was just fantastic time. The second one especially, the writer of the second one was, uh, along with me, was uh, Kevin Hopps, who worked on many shows with me, starting at Rescue Rangers. Almost every show I did, I wanted Kevin on. Anyway, he said, yeah, I really liked it until I heard the commentary and I found out what a piece of crap it is. <laughs> it was just <laughs> like, I can't help myself whenever I'm talking about stuff like that. I say, oh yeah, but I wanted to, I kind of say, this is what I wanted to do and we got this kind of, but you know, I'm always thinking of what I wanted to do and what I didn't quite get, which is not the way to promote a movie. <laughs> also, Mike says less and less in that commentary because he had never seen the movie at that point. And so he was watching it for the first time. So he was just like watching it instead of watching and talking at the same time. Anyway, while we were, you know, writing the third one, the company sold itself to stars media. And they weren't interested in doing any more projects that were that they had to pay for. They licensed stuff and stuff, you know. They had different ideas on turning out. And eventually they have created new things, but not in animation. I think when they, when Stars bought that company, a lot of it was for their library of low rent horror films that they had done. <laughs> and it was a huge library. And they were kind of surprised that they had bought an animation studio. I think the only reason why they didn't like immediately shut it down was that it was the studio that did the Simpsons and the Simpsons was written by writers, I believe working for 20th century Fox, but it was produced at film Roman. And that was, so, you know, you walk into a building with characters you actually recognize that were big hits, you know, on the walls. It's like, you don't say, Oh yeah, shut this down. You go, really? How much of that do we own? Yeah. Not as much as they wanted. So who owns the rights to the Hellboy animated stuff now? Well, the animated stuff is, I don't know, we still buy it. I don't know. Literally, that does it. But if you wanted to make a new one, Universal did their version of Hellboy. So I'm just going to guess that for X amount of time, they still hold the rights. Like if they wanted to do another Hellboy movie right now, they'd have the rights to do it. And then there would come a time when suddenly it would all revert back to Mike 
frankly. Well, because I was thinking, in this age of reboots and relaunches, you had seven movies planned out. Well, we didn't have, we had a lot of episodes planned out, but we didn't have the seven movies. That was, you know, we hadn't thought past it. But it's like anything else. I mean, they would want, so it wasn't like these things were huge hits. Now, part of that was a marketing mistake we made early on, but it's not like it was Star Wars. And it's like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe no one's doing anything with Star Wars. They should do more movies. So it's not like, you know, there, there's people dying for it. However, if somebody wanted to do it, they, I'm sure they'd look at our old stuff, but because they weren't huge hits, they're not going to say, oh, we need those guys back to do it again. Yeah. It's like, no, it's like, okay, who's, who should we have do it now? You know, and hopefully they're, I know there's plenty of guys in the animation community who love Hellboy, and they're spin at it. So I know I'd like to see the third movie. Yeah, well, I mean, we would have liked to have done many, many more. So, but you know, and these days it's like, well, I am retired now for quite a while. Do I want to get into that? That would be more appealing than than a series. At one point, I was offered a job by Disney to come back to do because I had done a pilot when I was actually working on Bob's Burgers. Anyway, it was like, no, this isn't a dream project of mine. These are the people who should be in charge. Yeah, 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 that we were already talking to them. But it was one of those things like you're thinking about it and now you're out of the kind of the rat race and then you think, oh, wait, you're going to give notes and you're now, I know enough guys in the industry to realize, oh, now it works in a different way and People who used to think our executives are now literally part of the team. So they're like your co-producer. The difference is they get to veto anything you do. Ooh. You can't veto. You can try to talk them out of things. But it was like, why would it come back to that? There was a time when I was supposed to do the Rocketeer show. And it would have been a very... And ultimately I said, okay, so basically... There were things you could do and not do. I said, basically, it just needs to be a kid, has a helmet and a jetpack and the name Rocketeer. And they said, yep. I said, okay. And I came up with a completely different, nothing related to the movie kind of storyline that still put the kid in a leather jacket and, and that. It would have been not Darkwing Duck, but crazy, wild ideas, humor like that. And I would have loved to do that show. But I told him, I said, because this was Disney Junior doing it. And I, because they had been Playhouse Disney, I think it was their name, which were younger kids. And then when they became Disney Junior, they say, okay, now we're supposed to hit ages up to 11. And I said, well, basically, that's my old Disney Afternoon audience. So it's like my. At the time, my five-year-old grandson's favorite movie was Star Wars. So from my point of view, it was like, I don't have to hold back. I just told them, I said, look, I'm going to take a shot at this, and you need to pull me back. And to their credit, that's not the way they work. They want you to go along your path because that's how they make things different as opposed to all the shows going through the same executives and they're all going to yeah. kind of feel the same. So that was good. But since they weren't doing that, what I wasn't doing was looking at their other shows and saying, Oh, I have to make something that looks like that, which I did not want to do. So I was just taken off of it. And I was shocked because they, they said, we're going to go with the other guys. 
Uh, and I said, what other guys? And I didn't know. They had never told me that. There were other being guys? Double developed. Yeah, that it was being double developed. Because the way they had originally approached me was we've been waiting for the project for you. And we knew this was perfect for you. It sounded like I would be on it. So even if they didn't go with my story idea that I would be you know, in charge of the production side of it. And that wasn't it. It was, uh, that was a shock. That really hurt me because I was, I allowed my hopes to get way up. And I said, this is fantastic. I never dreamed this would happen because my last show I had done was actually for Netflix. And I said, every show I've done since leaving Disney has had a smaller and smaller budget and a shorter time schedule. And I'll finally be able to go out with a show that has a good budget and, no, not extravagant, but a good budget, and a great team. And, and that was very exciting. And then it was kind of pulled out from under me. Mm-hmm. Now it's good that I did not go with that because I ended up retiring a year early and just their normal development. Cause obviously I, I knew the people doing the, the show that they did go with by the time they'd be ready to get a green light to production, I would have been 65. <laughs> and it was like, so about the time I was going to retire is when I'd be starting. And if you love a show, that would, Hey, that'd be great. Anyway, the, it turned out they did a show and it was on the air for just a little bit and then pulled. And I don't know the story behind it, whether it was because of the Rocketeer movie that's in development or what, but, I said, well, I'm glad I dodged that bullet on multiple levels. Yeah, no kidding. Same with uh, when they asked me back to do a show based on the pilot. They said, we showed this to Bob Iger, and he thought it was great. And said, well, test it and let's go. Because it was an entire finished episode, complete, ready to go on the air. So not very many people get to pitch a show like that or see that kind of thing and they said it's a green lit green light we just have to test it and, and it's going to go and it was like it te- ultimately it tested well basically i had already passed on it at that time it would turn out it tested okay but meanwhile people changed their mind at because it was for this would be for disney plus i guess and that management said yeah we're going to do different stuff than that so I said, well, I'm glad I didn't really want to do that show. And, and <laughs> you know, and even though I'd you know, written and everything, it was based on a, a movie, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, that they had done two sequels to, and each sequel did worse and worse. So it was kind of like that was dragging us down. And, but it wasn't like I had created a character, even like this Rocketeer character or Darkwing, certainly, that I really believed in. Oh, yes, I can finally do the show. Uh, it wasn't that sort of thing at all. I had no big desire to get back into it. And a good thing because, again, pickle executives, they just decided, no, we're not going to do that. It's like, okay, I'm glad I wasn't on board that roller coaster. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, so, and there were a couple people who were like half a foot on that roller coaster and luckily had their these other projects that became big hits. I could sit and listen to this all day, but I'm sure you have better stuff to do. Well, it's been great. Where can fans find out more about you and do you have any upcoming uh projects that you're working no, on? I mean, these days i'm basically well usually what i do is i sell original artwork at conventions because about the time i retired was when i got my first invitation to a convention in atlanta you know and it was like oh wow for the first time i got to hear from fans of my show because again i had started in features and Ron Clemens, Glenn Keane, those guys can 
to sit in a movie theater and hear people reacting to their work. We had ratings, but usually our shows weren't dependent on ratings. It was more, you have to turn out 65 episodes, then you're done. So you never got to hear people laughing at your stuff or how much it meant to them. And I got to do that at conventions. So that was fun. But I needed, since they were giving me a table, I needed something to sell. And since Disney owns all my characters, it's I can't produce prints and things like that. So I just did original artwork that in theory they could forbid too, but you can make an argument it's fan art and, you know, they're probably not going to create a stink. But still, suddenly I found myself drawing these characters from long ago. And I had people from my crew saying, wow, you've really gotten better. I said, yeah, maybe I should have done this one. I was actually running the show. <laughs> anyway, that was fun. But of course, uh, with the pandemic, all cons, in fact, I was supposed to have just come back from the UK a few weeks ago. So I also, I do sell online for charity. There's once a year charity auction I do around, you know, toward in the fall. But that's the only thing I'm doing. And meanwhile, I'm I'm trying to learn how to paint, so I've been painting, or I've been putting paintings online. Trying. I've seen the pictures. You're doing pretty good. Oh, thank you. Well, I started having fun when I put Godzilla in the one. I say I like Godzilla at the end of the alley. Yeah, and the giant bees, which I hope to do the bigger version of that sometime. I just came into my mind, I wanted to do like a classic Western type painting of a cowboy on horseback, you know, walking along with the herd, but instead of a herd of cattle it was a herd of giant bees uh it was just a weird thing it came to mind and before i started that i realized because all my paintings are generally in these little sketchbooks i said i can't do this painting that small i wouldn't i literally would need smaller brushes and i know I, instead i'm just gonna try out one bee and it came out okay but there was still okay i need to work on some things before i try a bigger one you could have them corral the murder hornets <laughs> yes exactly anyway the that's been fun, too. I thought I'd be spending my retirement doing more writing, and, and I didn't think that I'd be actually concentrating more on my artwork. Although I want to get back and write, too. I'm just not sure what. Anyway, if people want to find me online, aside from Googling Tadstone slash podcast, if you basically search Instagram, Facebook, Twitter for my name, that's generally how I post. I do that to keep myself out of trouble. If I had a made-up name it would be like wearing a mask <laughs> which i do and i'm careful when i go out so i find it's better not to be anonymous anyway so people can find me on twitter facebook instagram just search for my name and when you see the giant bees or a bunch of pictures of darkwing duck and chippendale's rescue rangers you'll know you're hit the right spot or follow the links in the episode description there you go even better <laughs> <laughs> well tad it's been fun all right. Listeners, you know where to find him. You can find me on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. Or you can find myself along with other great podcasters at electronicmediacollective.com. Want to thank you again for chatting with me today and sharing your stories. Oh, it's been fun. I'm glad I did not uh, avoid your call thinking it was a junk call. <laughs> well, it could have been a junk call. Who knows? Yeah. Who's to say it's not? Yeah. <laughs> it all depends on uh, how you decide the last hour and a half went. I mean, but on that note, listeners, you know, there's a lot of good podcasts out there. And unless you heard it here, it's probably just a load of bull spit. So until next time, take her easy. ooh that sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you just failed. 
Be sure to tune in next time.